Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about steel, the most common of engineering metals. We also cover meteorites, austenite, and degrees Fahrenheit. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 107, Steel, April 28, 2016. So, Brian, have you ever wondered why Superman is the man of steel rather than the man of molybdenum? Uh, Jeff, I I always wondered that myself. I would have gone with the man of osmium, but that's just me. <laughs> and, and you would pick out osmium uh, for what reason? What What is the special characteristic of that element? Well, because I vaguely remembered and then confirmed before we started the show that uh, it's used in super hard alloys of steel. In things such as uh, ballpoint pen balls and uh, uh, phonograph needles. So Mm. while uh, 90% of our audience looks up what a phonograph is, (laughs) rest assured, (laughs) it requires very hard alloys. Right, right. To to cut deep into that vinyl record, right? So you can only play it eight or nine times before it starts scratching really badly. Yes, and Wikipedia claims that it is the least abundant uh, stable element in the Earth's crust. Uh, and Wikipedia has never lied to me. Never. Nope. Nope. Wikipedia is uh, is a trustworthy source around here. So, Jeff, why do you ask? Well, I ask because it is time to have another tutorial. I, I can hear the listeners out, out there right now clicking off, right? <laughs> oh, not another tutorial. Well, it, it takes all the pressure off. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had cheer. Thought I heard cheers. Yeah, a tutorial. Woohoo! More accounting. <laughs> well, f- well, fortunately, not accounting. Oh, uh, we we decided that uh, for for this episode, we would do a tutorial on what has to be uh, one of the most common metals uh, used for all kinds of stuff, and that's for steel. And is steel still used in our everyday life? Well, sure. Nails are made out of steel. Car bodies are made out of steel. Girders for buildings are made out of steel. All kinds of things are made out of steel. Not if you bought a Ford recently. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that's aluminum or plastic or – and even nails are made out of aluminum. No. Some of them. Actually, I thought, I thought uh, screws and nails were certainly sure made out of zinc, weren't they? Well, they're often zinc-coated to keep them yeah. from rusting. Oh, yep. then I'm wrong. That's galvanizing, right? Or am I getting a bit ahead of myself? You are getting ahead of yourself because we will cover, hopefully we'll get to some talk about plating and means of protecting the steel. Gotcha. So it's a good jumping off point for uh, a discussion of steel. Well, I guess I guess uh, just a little understanding of what steel really is. Okay. So where do I find it on the periodic table? You don't find it on the periodic table. That's the issue. Wait, what? Yeah, so every everybody <laughs> everybody thinks steel is steel that we mined it out of the the earth that way, but in fact, uh, steel is mostly iron. So we do mine iron out of the earth, and it is iron that has been alloyed that is mixed 
with other elements, but most particularly what makes it steel is that it's mixed with a small amount of carbon. So when we have a iron carbon mixture, uh, we have steel. And so really a, a, perhaps a better term for steel would be an iron alloy because that's what it is. It is iron alloyed with some other elements, most particularly uh, carbon. Given what little I know about early iron smithing, mm-hmm. it almost seems like it'd be difficult given the uh, means by which iron was smelted not to just inherently end up with steel. Because typically you've got, you know, extremely hot, not molten, but hot iron that's then being pounded and then placed back into a furnace of some kind, thus in some ways mixing carbon into the surface layers. Mm -hmm. So is that why it was discovered so early? Well, part of the problem is that uh, if you have carbon in too great an abundance, the, uh, the alloy gets very hard and brittle. And it doesn't work Mm -hmm. as steel as we know it. So the problem usually is that you have too much carbon, uh, either in iron ore or uh, some of the early iron came from meteorites that landed and were fairly pure iron. Mm -hmm. But if you you weren't lucky enough to come across some point where you could mine it or or have it fall out of the sky in a fairly pure form, the problem was usually you had too much carbon uh, in the the, uh, structure, the metallic structure. And so it didn't it didn't behave as steel does as, as we know in modern steel. Uh, and so the key was those people that could figure out uh, how to get the carbon out of the iron ore and hence make it uh, mostly iron with just a little carbon. Cause we're just talking a few percentage points of carbon that you want in this mixture. So where does the iron come from? If you are a primitive society on this planet, how do you get the iron? Well, iron is a, uh generally found in the ground or as Jeff mentioned, meteorites. Um, <laughs> there, um, there are some places that have uh, relatively accessible deposits of iron and there's lots of places with nowhere near as accessible, which is what we've uh, more recently started having to mine uh, as the really accessible stuff has become uh, depleted. Yeah. So it, it, most all of it comes from the ground. Now, some of it was near the surface and very easy to get at, and as Adam mm-hmm. has indicated over the years, the first the first areas to get mined were, were those that were high in pure iron. So in the iron ore, uh, good iron deposits would be considered, say, 60 or 70 percent uh, pure iron. Uh, as we've gone through the years and mined the easily accessible stuff, now we're, now we're dealing with those formations that are lower in pure uh, iron. And therefore, more work has to be done to extract the iron ore, or I'm sorry, extract the iron uh, out of the ore. Yeah, and in recent years, they've started going to some extreme measures and uh, even going to things like like taconite, which was previously uh, viewed as a waste product. I guess recent years is maybe in this global scheme of, of iron usage in the on our planet. Um, but things which used to be just discarded because they were so hard to get the iron out of are now um, the primary sources in some areas. Oh, yeah, and, and what... Uh one reason Adam and I may have at least a little bit of knowledge about this, even though we are, have never worked in that industry, is our home state was, from my understanding, the primary source of iron in the U.S. for at least the past hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Masaba Range. Am I pronouncing that right, Adam? Um, I've heard it called Masabi. Masabi. Okay. 
uh, and the hematite, I believe, was the iron that had extremely high concentration concentrations and was, well, I would think, exhausted sometime at or around World War II. Um, now, don't quote me on this, but I believe I heard a statistic that uh, currently the northern Minnesota Iron Range supplies the entirety of virgin iron ore to the U.S. steel industry or something like that or a majority um, but it is still a, a very important iron mining region. Um, mm-hmm. Just now they've moved to taconite um, instead of uh, hematite. Yep. Right. And I, and I guess we should say that uh, in this conversation, we're going to come across a lot of words that end in ite. And I don't know exactly the, the reason for that, but you know, if, if you're going to study uh, electrical engineering, you have to learn terms, you know, from names of the, of the discoverers. So we have, you know, Bode plots and Fourier transforms for, for the contribution of those uh, individuals. And, uh, you know, in mechanical, we may have something like a Stirling engine. We, we, you know, we have to memorize that name and associate with that pattern. So in the area of uh, metallurgy, there's, and especially steel metallurgy, there, there are lots of ite names. Uh, and so we'll, we'll throw those terms about, but uh, uh, one just sort of has to memorize them, I suppose, uh, as, as you go along. Um, for my very quick Google searching while we're talking to, uh, you know, um, you know, it is, is derived from the Greek, from Greek, um, meaning rock or stone. So a lot of ores are ites. Um, okay. And, um, well, we're talking about a lot of, a lot of ores, right? Obviously. Um, and a lot of different types of stone. Okay. So, so any, so taconite is what a tacon rock. Sure. Okay. <laughs> We'll go with that. Well, and I have to look it up. I don't know if taconite is actually the ore so much as the processed material. No, it is. It, the it is. These days they're they're mining taconite and starting with that as the as the base material. But when you when you see taconite kind of in the wild in industry, it's typically in these. It's mixed in clay balls that are. Uh, not sure if they fire them so that they maintain their structure, but. If you drive the, uh, I guess, coast of Superior, uh, uh, Lake Superior, mm-hmm. you'll see the big taconite conveyors that go out to the uh, Lakers, the ships that carry ore from Minnesota to uh, Lake Carry more than just ore, but up in our neck of the woods, primarily ore to the uh, steel facilities in, let's see, Ohio and think they would probably go all the way to pennsylvania i'm not sure when they're put on rail cars but um so t- so taconite is a is a rock that uh, at least to me looks you know it looks you know it's kind of whitish and looks kind of like limestone and and whereas some of the early ores would have 60 or 70 percent uh iron the uh the iron content of taconite is in the range of 25 to 30 percent um the the clay balls you're referring to are actually taconite powder mixed with clay Mm-hmm. primarily to make them more easy to handle and delicious <laughs> and and delicious that's right yeah uh, what, and so maybe we should talk before we get too deep into the uh into the the process and the the chemistry oh my god chemistry we might talk about that tonight uh to the the details of steel and let's talk about why steel i mean why it instead of copper let's say and uh the the big reason is that 
it has a relatively low cost because iron ore is abundant. And relative to other metals, it's fairly easy to work with. Yeah. Um, and especially for, it also is relatively strong um, for its cost and in, in ease to work with. You know, some metals like copper you mentioned is very easy to work with, but not very strong. Right. And one of the, one of the characteristics that I know that Adam, you like when you're building structures is it has uh, the ability uh, for elastic deformation. That is you can deform it, let it go and it will return to its original shape. Now there are limits to that. Uh, but if you have a, a bridge or a, or a concrete beam, let's say that has a, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a steel beam inside, you want that, you want that beam to be able to deform uh, when the heavy truck goes over it uh, and to take up some of that, uh, some of that stress. So it isn't all transferred to the concrete. Yep. Well, and it has a very nicely defined um, stress strain curve with a nice elastic region and then a nice plastic region after that, which is also nice for your concrete beam that you can make sure that it fails in a a, um, a plastic manner and not in a brittle failure. Right. So, so if it were the concrete alone, it it, it would be a, more a ceramic, and when it break when it broke, it would break in a brittle manner. That would it snap and it'd be done with. Um, and yep. you you use the the interior steel beam to uh, have plastic deformation. That is, the beam may stretch and change shape, but it does so slowly enough uh, that you don't have the bridge snapping in half. It may deflect or it may deform, but still give people time to drive off the bridge. Hopefully, <laughs> yes. I, I I appreciate your vote of confidence there. <laughs> I'm assuming by drive off the bridge you mean safely at the end, not off the side. It, yes, right? that's what I mean. Well, yeah, get away, <laughs> get away before the whole thing falls down. Um, yeah, and I will say I'm not as we all have talked about many times. I'm not a structural engineer, um, so I don't know the details of all of how everything is done. But that's the basic gist from what I remember back in college. <laughs> Right. Nor am I a steel expert. So uh, we, much of what we're talking about I've, is is reaching back 30 years to my undergraduate degree. So uh, if, if there is a steel expert out there and uh, we make mistakes, feel free to let us know or uh, even better, come on and share some of your engineering stories with us. Even better. You know, a, a proper unicorn would be a <laughs> chemical engineer that is a steel expert. Ooh, ooh, that'd be excellent. Yeah. That would be really good. One, uh, one anecdote, uh, you know, since we're talking about steel and metals, I do believe that because aluminum was kind of late to our metal toolkit as a civilization, um, it was extremely rare and difficult to uh, extract such that uh, it was really, really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe the top of the Washington Monument is made out of effectively an ingot uh, ingot of uh, aluminum. Wow. Because it was considered, like, that was a huge show of, I guess, economic power, which we consider to be kind of trivial now, but. Wow. Well, that's a, uh, that's a neat little historical uh, point. And, and a quick search of the, uh, the internet says that you are indeed correct. There's an aluminum cap on the top of the Washington Monument. Yeah. Anecdotes. (laughs) Is there, anything, is there anything they can't do? No. Not really, no. <laughs> All right. Well, and so let me add one final uh, issue about why steel is, is such a valuable building material for industry. And that is 
you can do so much with it. You can change its properties so much by just making slight changes in its elemental uh, configuration. That is what, which elements are, are added to it. Uh, and you can do a lot by, uh, we'll talk later about heat treating by changing the rate at which it's heated up and cooled down. You can change its hardness. You can change its strength. You can change its toughness. You can do so many things with it. And so as a result, if you have a resistor, you know, you buy a resistor and it will have a certain resistance. And yes, you may have, you may, you may have unwanted characteristics, you know, a certain amount of inductance or capacitance or something, but a resistor is pretty much a resistor and you pick a numerical value. The, the characteristics of steel are so numerous uh, where you're trying to, sometimes you want conductivity in steel. Sometimes you want strength. Sometimes you want toughness. Sometimes you want uh, abrasion resistance. Sometimes you want resistance to uh, uh, vibrational work hardening. You can tweak your steel to meet the characteristics you need. And there are just so many steels out there uh, to pick from. And so this is an area where it's rarely that you can just say, well, I need this value. You know, I, I can just say, well, I need the strength value and go on. Although if you need that, there are certain steels that are pretty common, but it's just such a vast area and there's just so much that goes into it. And quite honestly, in most industries, you just follow what everybody else is doing. You know, you don't, you don't have time enough to go through the thousands of steels out there and evaluate each one. You're pretty much like, well, the rest of our industry is using this steel. So let's, Let's make minor deviations from that because we know it works uh, for our industrial needs. Plus, if everybody else is using it, it's probably cheaper <laughs> because of, of people are making it. Right. It, and, and you're less likely to, uh, to be beaten about the ears uh, if something goes wrong because you're using the same thing everybody else is using. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So as we mentioned earlier, iron ore is extracted from the earth. Uh, the... The, uh, the materials that these days we're pulling out of the earth, like taconite, it's tough to get to the iron that's in it. It's sort of, it's sort of in there as small little particles. Uh, and so, the, as we mentioned, the, the taconite is ground up and into powder. And then this powder is put into a blast furnace uh, where it's, it, the temperature is raised to be very, very hot. And the... Uh, Modern technology has improved the blast furnaces, but the big change in that was the Bessemer furnace, which came back, uh, came along in the late 1800s. And the trick there was uh, Henry Bessemer figured out that if you blow air into the bottom of the furnace across the uh, the ore, that you basically are injecting oxygen in there, and you're you're uh, so you're taking heat from the top of the furnace, you're blowing air into the bottom, and you make it just that much hotter, uh, and you were able to mass produce iron ore as opposed to what they used to have to do in just uh, mixing stuff in crucibles. They could do only do small amounts until Bessemer figured out how to blow this massive amount of air into the bottom of the furnace to make it very, very hot uh, because you have to get it up uh, well above 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit uh, to get the, essentially what you do is you get the iron to melt out of the rock. That's essentially what you do. And then, mm-hmm. and then the iron, this iron will melt down to the bottom and, uh, give you uh, relatively pure iron, there will still be carbon in there. And, and you may have to make, take other steps to get rid of the excess carbon uh, or the other materials, the other uh, contaminating elements that you don't want uh, in your final iron product. So what were they burning to get the, the iron up to 2,500 degrees? So uh, typically these days uh, we use Coke. That is we take charcoal, 
I'm sorry, we take uh, coal and we burn it in the absence of oxygen to make coke. And then we use the coke at the bottom of the furnace to create the create the heat needed to melt the uh, melt the iron. Mm-hmm. And is coke basically just really low water content coal at that point, or is it is it just pure carbon? There's a little more to coke. Um, a lot of the the various things like sulfur that are in coal mm-hmm. uh, get get heated off. I like to think of it uh, much like making charcoal from wood, mm. except you're making coke from coal. Gotcha. Um, I mean, basically what it is is mostly carbon uh, that you're using for fuel. So um, if, if we're going to talk about how steel is heat treated, we have to get a little bit into the, the chemistry or the, the uh, uh, crystalline structure of iron uh, so we know how to talk about the crystalline structure of steel and how that varies with temperature. Uh, so as you may recall, uh, recall from your chemistry classes, uh, or if you had a metallurgy class somewhere in your, in your engineering training, most metallic elements have regular crystalline structures that are somewhat like stacked dice. Uh, and, and this arrangement allows the atoms to easily slide over one another. Uh, and therefore metals are easily uh, pure metals are generally easily bent or stretched. And you may think of this as if you've ever uh, taken a, a, a paper clip and you've unbent the paper clip, it's fairly easy to unbend. Uh, and that's because it it's, has a fairly regular structure. And when you unbend it, you displace some of those structures, uh, but that's not too hard to do. And then as you, as you bend that, you know, you can break that paper clip off. You work it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth a number of times. And you're basically cold working that. That is, uh, you are creating uh, discontinuities in that regular uh, structure. And uh, if you touch it, there's heat, right? You're adding heat to the system by the working uh, that you're doing. And eventually, you've created so many discontinuities that is no longer a regular uh, crystalline structure. And as a result, it's no longer uh, what we call malleable. It's no longer ductile. Uh, malleable meaning you can pound it into sheets and ductile, you can pull it into wires. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's now because of that cold working that we'd call that, that moving the paperclip back and forth, it's become brittle. And eventually, it becomes so brittle that you move it back and forth enough times it breaks off. That's what boils down to in most steel applications is, do you want it to be more malleable, you know, easier to form, or do you want it to be harder? And if you want it to be harder, that's great, but it's going to be more brittle. If you want it to be tougher, uh, then you have to give up some hardness. So that's almost always the trade-off you have when selecting a steel. So the crystalline structure for a lot of metals uh, comes in one of two forms, either a body-centered cubic, uh, where if you think of the dice, or the die is being the structure. You've got the atoms at the uh, eight corners, and then you have an atom in the center of the die. Uh, so that would give you a total of two atoms total in each cell, an eighth at each corner, because at the corners, they're part of multiple cells. Uh, and then you have the one in the center. So you have two atoms total in a body-centered cubic uh, cell. The other arrangement is a face-centered cubic cell, where you have the eight corners, and now you have an atom at each of the six faces on the die. Uh, and this gives you, of course, the eight corners eight times an eighth or one, uh, plus the six faces, and, and each of those are cut in half, shared between two cells. And so you end up with uh, one-eighth times eight is one, and six times a half is three more, or a total of four atoms in a 
a face center cubic arrangement. And so as you can, you know, guess there's some differences in the atomic poles and the strengths and the, you know, the regions for other things to, to mix into that, uh, that type of structure dependent on whether it is a, a body center cubic or BCC arrangement or a face center cubic or FCC arrangement. Now, when you say uh, these common arrangements, uh, is it typically specific to a type of element, like an element will have one kind of arrangement, or is it, can there be multiple arrangements per individual element? Uh, so it, it depends on the element, and I think that the, uh, I can't remember who did all the classifications, I think there's a total of 17 uh, type of arrangements have been noticed in nature uh, mm-hmm. And some of them are like the cubic, but skewed, you know, you know, off center a little bit. Uh, and some are like in centered where you don't have it on the, the atoms, not on the face, all faces, but on two of the faces, I think there's 17 of these, but the two most common are the, the body center cubic and the face center cubic. And when we're talking with steel, those are really, those are the two common ones for iron. So those are the two most important ones for uh, dealing with steel since steel is an iron alloy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the other factors is that iron is an allotropic element, which means that it can exist in more than one crystalline form or what we call a phase at a time. So you can have iron and part of it can be in the BCC configuration and part of it can be in the FCC configuration uh, at the same time. Are these typically localized to domains or you know, like crystalline groups? Maybe I should say grains. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me back up one one step, and then I'll get into grains. Uh, okay. So I'll just point out that a uh, we have the structure, of, and, but we have a structure of what we consider to be pure a pure element. In this case, it's iron. Uh, and if we mix in some other element, then that that mixture is called an alloy. If you've got a metallic combination, and and we're or we're one at least one of the elements is metallic, it's called an alloy. And so. Alloys are normally formed by mixing together materials in their molten state. Uh, now we may we can do some things with carbon to uh, try to uh, add carbon later on to the surface, but it's hard to get carbon into the center of a piece of steel, especially a thick piece of steel, later on. So usually, you know, the amount of carbon either comes in with the iron ore or it's somehow added in. You know, with, we mix everything in in the molten state, and then and then use heating and cooling to make the carbon move to where we want it to move to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the uh, the factors in in alloying is that you need to have uh, the relative size of the atoms has an effect on its ability to, to alloy. And it turns out that the the carbon atom is about one thirtieth the size of the iron atom. And as a result, it's very easy for the carbon atom to move in and out of the spaces you know between the uh, the iron atoms. So uh, what this means is that we can we can consider a a solid solution that is, even though it's solid, right? The carbon solid, the iron solid. They're, they're, the carbon is dissolved into the uh, into the iron, making a solid solution. So, that being said, we'll we'll get back we'll get back just a minute to the uh, uh, to the solution and in, in, in the steel making. But but to your question or your your comment, Brian, about the grains. So metals are rarely uniform, and mm-hmm. so. They're, they're made up of a large number of grains, which are regions of crystalline regularity. And then at the grain boundaries, uh, those are the areas where the, the crystalline structures have become misaligned. Uh, 
Um, so if you go look at a piece of uh, like a lamppost or, or a hand railing, a lot of times they're zinc coated. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that, you'll see, look, you'll see patches, irregular patches of varying gray color. Uh, typically, if you think about uh, something that's been galvanized, galvanized metal, a lot of times something that's called galvanized will have this, this patchwork pattern. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing is each of those, uh, each of those patches uh, that look a different color, it's not that they're really a different color. It's that they're each oriented in a different direction. And the light, because of that, the light that's coming in off of it reflects differently. And so we perceive it, our eye perceives it as a, uh, a different color. So that is, you know, basically that is what happens within a metal. We have lots of grains. Uh, when something is, is uh, when, the, when the pattern is very regular, then you'll find that the, the grains are very large. If you, mm-hmm. if you do something like cold working a metal, like we did to the, the paper clip, then what you're doing is basically you're breaking up those grains and you're creating lots of much smaller grains because you're cold working it. You're basically putting in discontinuities in this, in the crystal structure, which again Mm -hmm. has the, has the effect of making it harder, but also more brittle. So oftentimes you'll see certain items. And to me as an electrical engineer, it just seems like a marketing term, you know, kind of like big bold letters, cold forge, Tamer, blah, blah, blah. What would be an advantage to having a cold forged uh, steel tool? Well, when you when you work uh, a steel cold, you get that work hardening, um, which is a. But it wouldn't it get brittle? Well, you, you have to do it to the right amount. Okay, so I mean, based on what you've been the paperclip analogy, it, it seems like working a piece of steel cold would only be negative, if you will. It's a it's a matter of everything in moderation. So as you start to cold work something, it, it'll get harder. Um, but it, do, it it continues to get more brittle, and this is a trade off continuously with steel and, and various uh, treatment processes. As you get harder, you get more brittle. So mm-hmm. it, it's about working it to the point that you've got the appropriate hardness, but you haven't sacrificed by getting too much brittleness. Gotcha. Right. So, so if you have, we'll talk, uh, hopefully we'll get to talking about some applications, but if you have a, say a punch and you, and you have, you know, this, this small piece that's, uh, I don't know, let's say a quarter inch in diameter and it's coming down repeatedly. Let's just say it's a, a circular punch and it's punching out circles out of sheet metal over and over mm-hmm. and over. You want that to be pretty tough, right? You keep banging on this material over and over and you want it to be resistant to abrasion. You don't want it to, to yeah. erode over time. Uh, you want it to uh, to make clean cuts every time, and so you want some you want some hardness at that surface. Uh, but if you ever do break it, it'll it'll snap pretty good. It'll be it won't be it won't bend like a paperclip. It will snap because you, mm-hmm. because you've made it hard. So uh, as Adam mm-hmm. says, there's a, there's a trade off. The brittleness is not all bad. You you uh, you know the risk of it breaking like that goes up as you make it harder, but. In many applications, we need something that's hard, and and with proper design, uh, you can make something that's sufficiently hard, uh, but but is not subject to such a uh, a huge uh, deformation or or, or uh, uh, movement uh, that it breaks. Yeah, and a lot of tools like wrenches, you're not likely by the time you're seeing a, a noticeable deformation, the tool's worthless. Um, if you've got your your ratchet and your ratchet handle bends. 
okay, mm-hmm. well, now you're in uh, plastic deformation, so it, it's worthless. I don't ever want to see plastic deformation on a hand tool. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. So, so we have these grains, and, and so let me talk a little bit about these, how these grains show up in, in iron. So let's, let's suppose that we have a big vat of iron. And uh, now we're, you know, we're, we're assuming pure iron, so we're making a few assumptions, but, but we have a big vat. We, we heat it up really hot, and the iron becomes liquid. Okay. Now, as the liquid cools, grains will start to form around nucleus points. So in the same way, if you have, if you have uh, uh, water uh, and you start to freeze it, you know, you'll see little ice or crystals start to form at certain points. Uh, and then other water molecules around that will join that crystalline structure. Uh, and so as, as the water cools or as our uh, iron cools, grains start to form around these, these nucleus points. And, and they form grains. And each of these grains are made up of millions of iron atoms. Uh, and they have a regular structure. Exactly which regular structure uh, depends on on some things we'll talk about, but it has a regular structure. So at atmospheric pressure, there are three allotropic forms of pure iron. That is phases or grain structures. Mm-hmm. These are room temperature. Iron exists in grains that have a BCC, body-centered cubic phase, uh, configuration that's known as ferrite. Uh, and so this is, this is pretty close to pure iron, uh, does not contain much carbon, can only dissolve 0.021% carbons. So doesn't have much carbon. Interesting. It, it, it can only, or it has only. Well, so if you have this, if you have this pure iron and it's in the ferrite phase, it cannot dissolve too much carbon into it. Okay. It, it's like if you take a, uh, a glass of water and you dump salt in it. Yeah, yeah. It, you're only okay, going to get so a, much. It's the solubility of the material. Right. Yep. Right. Or actually, no. There's, what's the yes. reverse? Solubility is solution? No, it, it's solubility. Isn't it? Well, it's... I always, it's, get, it's, it, I always get it backwards. It's whatever the inverse of solubility is, I guess. Yes, yes. That's what I was getting at. Okay. Again, chemical engineer. <laughs> We're anxious, right? Yes. So now if you raise the temperature, you start raising it up and you get beyond about seven, around 1700 degrees Fahrenheit or about 900 degrees centigrade, the iron transforms to a face center cubic phase known as austenite, or it's also known as gamma iron, whereas the ferrite was known as alpha iron. That's when you're, you're new to this phase, it's a little confusing because they throw these things, they say alpha iron and ferrite as though you knew which was which. And uh, gamma iron and austenite as though you automatically knew these were the same. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that once you get hot enough, it shifts. It just sort of magically at this point, transition point shifts into a different phase. And in this phase, the austenite can dissolve as much as 2% carbon by mass. So as compared to the 0.02, a much greater percentage, a hundred times greater solubility of carbon. Okay. And, and this is important in heat treating. We often want to get to that phase. So we can get lots of carbon into the system. Um, and then if you keep heating, you keep heating beyond the, uh, the austenite phase. You go even higher. You get above about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit or about 1,400 centigrade. The iron switches back to a different BCC phase known as delta iron. 
And we don't worry about delta iron too much because it's so close to the liquid phase. You add just a little more heat beyond that, you get above about 2,800 degrees F or, or uh, about 1530 centigrade, uh, the iron becomes a liquid. Now, what's interesting about this, because I, until you met, said that, I, I, I kind of assumed we were in the quasi-liquid phase. The carbon is actually dissolving into a solid? Yes. The, so that's, the, that's the, the beauty of it. The carbon is moving around in the solid, even though it's solid, right? It's not liquid. How far can the carbon diffuse beyond the uh, surface layer? Well, so any carbon you have deep in, the, you know, we've, we've said that the carbon is added, you know, when everything's in a molten state, it's in there. But now that it's in there, uh-huh. it will start to, it will start to uh, diffuse. And so what happens is, oh, gotcha. By as the carb, now we've so far, we've just talked about pure iron. We've talked about these phases as pure iron. But once we add the carbon, the carbon will move and add itself into different phases in different uh, amounts, depending on the solubility of that phase. And in that way, we can control the manner in which the carbon is distributed in the solid, and therefore we can control the mechanical properties of the steel. Gotcha. Oh, and I, so I will add the delta iron is also not very soluble. The carbon is not very soluble, and the delta iron, uh, at, it only allows 0.09%. So basically, it's only the austenite phase, that face center cubic phase, that can take in a lot of carbon up to 2%. So now we're going to start talking about introducing carbon into the iron structure. And mostly what we're going to be doing is talking about low, low percentages of carbon, what we call low carbon steel, because as you get to higher and higher percentages of carbon, the behaviors start to change slightly, and there's just not nearly enough time in one episode to get into that. So mostly we're talking about low carbon steel here, although we're interested in introducing some of the right terms and some of the right terminology. So at what point is does uh, steel become high-carbon steel versus low-carbon steel? The general switching points are to say that if you have iron with very little carbon in it, uh, that is less than 0.05%, that's called wrought iron, which basically means almost pure iron with very little carbon. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you've heard of like wrought iron fences that used to be, it used to be because the fence didn't have to do much except stand there. Right. And it was very easy to, because it had no carbon in it, it was very easy to manipulate, to deform and to make, you know, the fences with the little swirls and the curly cues and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. These days, most, even if it's called a wrought iron fence, it's almost certainly steel. Then low carbon is, is iron that contains from about 0.05 to about 0.25%. So again, we're talking about very low percentages of carbon. And this is the most common form of, of steel. If, as you raise the carbon content, you get into medium carbon steel, which is from about 0.3 to about 0.6%. Uh, and this, is, this makes it harder. The additional carbon makes it harder. It's used for gears and crankshafts. If you add even more carbon, you allow that into the system from between 0.65 and 1%. Uh, now you... The carbon makes it very hard. It's used for cutting tools and dies and taps and chisels and springs and swords and high-strength wire. And if you add even more iron, uh, carbon in there, you get into the region of ultra-high carbon steel, uh, which is used for special purposes like uh, axles or punches. And then you get to above about 4% carbon. Now you're in the region of cast iron, which is cast beautifully. If you want to do a casting, you know, you cast iron pans, that kind of stuff. It casts beautifully, but you don't want to smash your cast iron pan 
with a hammer, you're likely to crack it in half. Hmm. So if we go back to, so we've talked about sort of the ranges of adding carbon into it. So what happens if we don't have any carbon and we add it into it, then the, the, the phases are still there. The austenite, the ferrite are still there, but the transition temperatures are lowered and the transition, the transformation temperatures, instead of being a single temperature, uh, happen over a range of temperatures because as you add more carbon, uh, the characteristics of the, of the, the mixture uh, change and you, and so the, the temperature may change. So if we, st- let's start with uh, the steel as a molten liquid and then start removing heat to show what happens. So we know that liquid water changes to solid ice at 32 degrees or zero degrees, uh, 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees centigrade. And as we remove heat, uh, the phase change continues, but the temperature remains constant until the phase shift is completed. And thus halfway through the process, we have an a sort of an icy mush that is part liquid and part solid. And the same thing happens with steel. As we reach a transformation temperature, uh, we begin transforming from one phase into the other. And so we may have a transition between austenite and ferrite or ferrite, and we'll introduce per- perlite. You know, we'll, we'll have these various uh, phases. Uh, and the only difference is that as we add carbon, the transformation uh, temperature changes, but there is definitely a, a, a transformation temperature that uh, occurs. Which really isn't that different from ice if you add something like salt. Yeah, you you just change the. It, it's still all the same things occur. You just change the temperature at which it occurs. Mm-hmm. So as we as we as we start at liquid and we start dropping down, now we, we're adding carbon into our system. Right, we assume that we have not just pure iron, but we have iron and carbon, some low concentration. Let's say 0.2 percent, something like that. So below the melting temperature, the iron transforms to delta iron, which we don't really worry about too much. That's, that's a form of iron that's almost near the melting point. We can't do much with iron near the melting point, so we let it continue to drop. So as we get below the delta uh, iron, then we move into gamma iron or austenite. And so austenite is non-magnetic, which is sometimes an issue. Uh, but what we like is it can hold up to 2% carbon by weight uh, in solution. Now, typically, we use the the austenite as a intermediate process. We normally don't end up there, right? Because it, it takes a lot of heat to get there. Uh, we use that as an intermediate process. And so, as we continue to cool, we start to get a mixture of the FCC austenite and the BCC body center cubic ferrite. And the temperature where this transformation starts to happen, where the pure austenite begins to transform into ferrite, it's called the upper critical temperature, and it's somewhere in the range of 1350 to 1650 Fahrenheit, which is around 730 to 910 centigrade. And so we start making this transformation from austenite into ferrite. And as we continue to drop the temperature, more and more the austenite turns into ferrite. It changes from FCC to BCC. And if we lower the temperature enough, we get to the lower critical temperature, which is around 1340 Fahrenheit, which is about 725 centigrade. So now that we've dropped the temperature, we've moved from we've moved from liquid to delta iron to gamma iron, the austenite, and now we're into essentially ferrite, which is is known as alpha iron. Okay, but something happens here because we have the carbon. Okay, and here's where it's interesting: since there's more room for the carbon atoms in the austenite structure, remember because it's FCC, than in the uh, the BCC structure for ferrite, the carbon atoms have to diffuse through the grains of steel, right? They have to get out of the FCC austenite and get into something else. 
they, they have to go someplace. Uh, and this diffusion takes time. So depending on how quickly we cool, we can change the mechanical properties. If we quench, which means we cool almost immediately, we get a completely different set of properties than if we allow it to uh, cool slowly. So is that the, when you, uh, when you say quench, uh, I mean, I've seen people work on storage. Is that what they take it out of the fire and plunge it into like a liquid? Yeah. So, so let me, let me get to, there are several forms of, of what the steel looks like at room temperature. And one of them will be a uh, martensite, which is related to quenching. So let me, let me talk about what it is if we allow it to cool slowly, and then I'll, I'll tell you what it is if we, if we quench it. And so assuming we're, we're dealing with a low carbon steel, the, the steel, as we cool, the ferrite starts to form along the austenite grain boundaries. And since the ferrite has a relatively low carbon solubility, the carbon atoms diffuse back into the untransformed austenite, raising its carbon content. And eventually the carbon content of the austenite gets so high, that is it gets above about 0.8%, it changes to what we call perlite. So what is perlite? Well, essentially, perlite is a combination of ferrite, which we've dealt with before, which is nearly pure iron, and cementite, which is another term for iron carbide. Fe3C would be its, its chemical uh, designation. Uh, and this iron carbide has about 6.67% carbon content. So once we've put so much carbon into the austenite, it, boom, it changes and becomes a combination of ferrite and cementite. And it forms, perlite means it's in a very uh, layered structure. Uh, it's sort of if you, took like a, if you took a head of cabbage, right, and chopped it in half, you'd see very fine structures, one layered on top of another. Okay, that's kind of what perlite looks like. Uh, and so this is typically once you do a cooling, if you do a slow cooling of the austenite, it will form some regions of ferrite and some regions of perlite. The perlite talking, uh, being a term to describe the microstructure of this, these laminations of ferrite and cementite, which is iron carbide. Mm-hmm. And you could, depending on, on how much you want of that, you can, you can change the cooling temperature to, uh, determine how much cementite you get versus how much ferrite you get. Now, if you cool the austenite too quickly, there's no time for that carbon to diffuse. And instead, it gets trapped at the grain boundaries. It's trying to escape the grains, right? And it creates a distorted BCC lattice called martensite, uh, which has a needle-like structure. And so martensite is very hard and very brittle. So you, you heat up the eye, you heat up the steel, right? You quench it. If you quench it, if it's a qu- fast quench, you'll create martensite, which gives a lot of hardness to the, uh, to the metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that's, so the process of taking, taking a, a, the hot metal and plunging it into either water or oil or some sort of, uh, quenching material forms, forms martensite. Yeah. So, if you heat up metal to a, or steel to a, a certain temperature, the speed that you quench it or bring it its temperature down affects how what you get when you get cold. So you do it quickly, you get something very hard, but tends to be brittle. If you do it slowly, you get something that's much much softer. And and depending on the situation, that would be either called tempering or annealing. 
annealing being the uh, the slower process. Yeah, and annealing is typically more complete. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With with tempering being, you've got something you've quenched, quenched and hardened, but it's too brittle now. So now you need to bring it just a little bit softer. Right. So, so heat treating is an important element in steel manufacturing. I mean, yes, there are some things that you just, you get your mild steel, you weld it up, you machine it, you don't do anything else to it. But there's an awful lot of parts where you need a hardness at the end, but you can't, if you make it hard enough to serve in the application, it's too hard to machine. So you may machine to a rough size, then uh, use heat treating to bring it up to its full hardness, and then use grinding or some other uh, material removal process that's slower than machining, uh, but can take the hardness of the, of the heat-treated steel uh, to bring it to its final shape. Uh, so you often, want, you often want them, not only steel, but other metals, but you want them to be as soft as possible for as long as possible so you can, you can remove material and bend it and move it and form it and then late in the process, once it's just about where it needs to be, then you heat treat it to make it hard so it has those properties, but you're not having to, to uh, manufacture it in that state. Yes, because diamonds are not cheap. Right. So, so this idea of heat treating, we do it to change the mechanical properties of the steel. We just want to change the ductility, the hardness, the yield strength, the impact resistance. And one of the important things to understand is that heat treating occurs well below the melting temperature. We're not... You know, we've already melted this thing once. We're not melting it again. We're we're just bringing the temperature up, usually to get into the uh, austenitic phase, and then move back down towards room temperature. So, we're, we, I don't have time to go into the diagrams, but those who are interested, uh, there's a time temperature transformation diagram, uh, and there's a continuous cooling transformation diagram, and those diagrams basically tell you at what temperature and for how long you have to hold temperatures in order to get the combination of various steel phases that you want in your final, uh, in your mm-hmm. final material. So if you want it to be all martensite, you can quench it very quickly and it can be all martensite. If you want a combination of martensite and ferrite and, and uh, cementite, you can cool it, heat it and cool it at the right combination of times and durations. And you can get that. So that knowledge is, is out there. But I think that what, what Adam mentioned was worth, uh, visiting a little more and that is the the two common methods of heat treating one is annealing and one is tempering so annealing is basically you're trying to remove all the stresses out of the system as much of the stress out of the system as you can uh, so you, you you're trying to uh, regain the regularity of the crystalline structures and so you heat above the upper critical temperature, which is, that is, you take everything back into the austenite, austenite phase. You hold it at that temperature for several hours or even days, depending upon what you're trying to do and the material you're working with. And then you allow it to cool slowly. And by allowing it to cool slowly, you're doing the opposite of quenching. You're trying to, you're trying to make everything happen so slowly that the grains become very large and, and, and the regularities are great, and you don't have too many grain uh, discontinuities. And by doing this, if you have unintentionally brought hardness due to cold working into your system, for instance, you're making a part, you're making a, say, a shaft, uh, uh, and you had to do a lot of cold forming in order to make that shaft, but you don't want the stresses in that shaft because otherwise it might snap too easily. So you may, you may manufacture the shaft and then anneal it 
to remove those stresses and then maybe say, introduce some, we'll talk about some surface hardening, some, just a little hardness at the surface uh, uh, to give it some, some resistance to, to abrasion or, or some strength in, in resisting uh, the effects of torque. But uh, the idea is that you can lessen uh, the brittleness, increase the toughness uh, by doing this annealing, which is, is, I think that as as Adam mentioned, this is a pretty deep process you, because you're doing everything slowly. It's pretty uh, homogeneous throughout the uh, the piece of steel. So as opposed to annealing, where you're trying to get rid of all the hardness, tempering is just sort of an intermediate amount. You go to austenite, you quench it uh, to make it hard, and then you re-raise the temperature to usually between 150 and 260 C, or between 270 and 650 C. Uh, but you you reheat up the temperature, uh, and then you can slowly, usually not as slowly as as annealing, but you can slowly bring the temperature down, and you can sort of temper the hardness. It's not it's not as soft as an annealed material, uh, but it's softer uh, than the quench material. And so, anytime you do this, basically you are increasing the well the machinability of the stuff uh, of the material. You're increasing the weldability of the material, which are are usually things that you, that you want to have happen. Well, and, and um, right after that quench, you're talking about brittle. I mean, th- this stuff can be really brittle, like as brittle as glass, mm-hmm. um, where it can shatter if you drop it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And one of the things uh, to note is there are thousands of steels out there, right? And some are made for very specific applications. So like one I used in a, in a past project was called AirMet 340. And this was a steel that was designed for aviation application, that is landing gear, that kind of thing, where you're going to really bank, you know, it was landing on the on the runway. Uh, it would be subject to great stresses, but you wanted it to be as lightweight as possible, right? So it was something the aluminum didn't have the strength for, but so you wanted the steel to be really, really hard, because if you're going to put up with a weight of steel, you wanted to get something for it. And so like with, with uh, an alloy like that, the manufacturer has very specific heat treating instructions. And so, you know, I didn't even bother thinking about trying to come up with my own heat treatment. I just said, Hey, go, you know, manufacture it, machine it, as I've indicated on the drawings, then go heat treat it exactly as the manufacturer says, so that I get the hardness strength at high temperature uh, that the manufacturer says that I can get if, if I follow their instructions. Do you get any change in dimensions when you heat treat like that? Do when you mill or work a piece and then heat treat it? Um, so you will get you will get uh, there's thermal expansion right so you'll get temperature uh, variations depending on what temperature you're at but if you start mm-hmm. if, if you start at room temperature heat it up and return to room temperature usually unless unless you've done something else usually you're pretty close to the same same size now that that may I can't remember having to deal with that so often so maybe engineers that have dealt with that on a daily basis have a better idea than I do I wouldn't think so but maybe that is an issue well, and depending on um, on your processes, um, you know, if you have a more controlled process, you can control that distortion. If you have um, much less controlled process, mm-hmm. um, you can induce accidental um, inconsistencies and get twisting, subtle twistings, and things like that. And it depends on what sort of scale you're talking about. Yeah, I was just thinking of like you know non-uniform heating and. Uh, and thus, like a almost like a bimetallic bend without being bimetallic, 
you know, ordinarily you wouldn't care in the metal, but since you have a finished, presumably a finished part with finished dimensions, I would imagine you get a little drift. Yeah. So, so the, the, I guess there is an issue in dimensional stability, but there's a bigger issue in uh, material properties. Uh, for instance, if, mm-hmm. if you're welding, uh, you're introducing a lot of heat into a small region. And so, uh, as you can imagine from our discussion, that if you if you're welding along, and you you let's say you haven't preheated the part, so a common thing is if you're going to weld a piece, you preheat it, and then you weld it, so that as you as you create this, this localized heat, that the it doesn't cool too quickly. That is, it doesn't it isn't almost similar to quenching, right? You know, the the remainder of the of the the piece mass doesn't pull heat away from the weld so quickly that it, it basically quenches. That's really strong, too mm-hmm. strong a term, but you end up with, with stresses that you don't want at the weld. Um, so I, I would be, I'm often less concerned about dimensional stability at that point than I am about the, you know, making sure that as you do anything, either machining a part or welding a part or heat treating a part or, you know, cold working or doing anything with a part that you're not inducing stresses into the system that you don't want or expect. Gotcha. So, Jeff, hot formed, cold formed, forging. How do these processes affect the overall capability of the steel that you're working with? So, when you are going out and buying the steel, that is, you you have a, a part and you you want to purchase the raw material to have something machined out of it. Usually, you have your choice between ordering hot formed or cold formed steel. And so if you have hot formed steel, that means that when it was formed, that the steel was above the recrystallization temperature. And so there, there will be some shrinkage uh, because it was, it was sized when it was hot, right? And now it has gotten cold and there is thermal expansion, so it will shrink down. And that may be irregular depending on the rate at which it cooled and which part of the, if you say you have a, you know, a 20 foot long beam, you know, did one side cool at the same rate as the other side? So there may be some uh, dimensional differences. And you're also likely to get uh, a rougher surface because it, it's hotter when it gets exposed to the air. And so more oxidation can form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's nothing to force it. There's no, you know, you've basically, you've let it cool out in the air. There's nothing to form it back to size or make it as smooth at the surface. Uh, so hot formed is going to be softer easier to machine, easier to weld, uh, because it hasn't been cold formed. There's no, no stresses have been imposed on it into its internal structure. Uh, but it will have a, you know, it will have a rough, rougher surface due to oxidation and maybe a little dimensionally less stable, not, not dimensionally less stable, but, but, uh, uniform, less dimensionally uniform. At least in my experience, it also tends to be cheaper. It does tend to be cheaper uh, for very, very this very purpose. They don't have to go back and measure it for dimensional accuracy. Although you know they're not having to do anything, they're basically just extruding it or for, you know however they're forming it and then letting it cool and then they sell it to you that way. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right, Adam. It's usually it's usually cheaper. Uh, so if you buy something that's cold formed, so now uh, after it has been you know sort of generally brought to the right shape, then it will be formed. In a cold, when it, when the the metal's cold, so it may be rolled or it may be stamped or punched. We'll talk a little bit about those processes in a minute. But 
basically in the cold state, you're bringing it to the dimension you want it to. And so you have more uh, dimensional uniformity. Uh, the surface will be neater if there's, you know, it, it, they tend to get rid of the oxidation points uh, to, to put some chemical on it or some physical process to get rid of the oxidation. They'll smooth it out. Uh, and so if you want, let's say you have a plate you want for the top of the machine, normally you want that to be cold formed if, you, if you're not going to machine it further, right? Because it's already pretty smooth as a, a cold formed. If you're going to machine it, well, maybe then you want to get the hot formed, machine it flat and, and do something there. Sometimes you, you want it to be cold formed and then machine it uh, from that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have your choice almost always of either hot formed or cold formed raw ma- uh, materials. Well, and the cold formed, as we talked about a little before, will have some work hardening already. Yes, it will almost always have a higher yield strength, a higher tensile strength uh, than hot formed. So I know that there are, as we mentioned before, there are many, many steels out there. So Adam, how do, how, with all the thousands of steels out there in your line of work, how do you go about picking one? Well, um, I go to the thing that I'm putting in and I make sure it matches what the structural engineer said it should be. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> now I know how non-electrical engineers feel about like resistor types and capacitors. Cause I, I'm just looking through a list of steel types and it just, you know, four, 4306, uh, 4828. It's just, it's seemingly not never ending list of numbers. Yeah. Well, and what makes it even worse is there are several different uh, numbering schemes. Um, and sometimes the numbers refer to the metallurgy. Sometimes they refer to a mechanical property. And sometimes they refer to a shape. And it's really sometimes hard to tell the difference. Um, so a relatively common, or at least my uh, steel class would lead me to believe, a relatively common uh, civil engineering steel would be A36. Mm-hmm which uh, has a yield strength of 36 KSI. And what is a KSI? Uh, it, it's, uh, if I remember correct, 1,000 PSI. That is correct. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. We um, uh, Civil engineers every once in a while, uh, and I guess mechanicals too, we combine the metric system and the uh, uh, English system. <laughs> <laughs> Steal the metric prefixes. Right. Right. So um, – so, so something like A36, which has a, a yield strength of 36,000 pounds per square inch, makes me think that if I wanted a something that had 53,000 pounds per square inch, I should order A53. Is that right? Um, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because Wrong. they need to make it complicated. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, an A53 is uh, 25 to 35 KSI. Right. And additionally, A53 is a spec for structural piping and tubing that only comes in standard pipe sizes. Yeah. So what it comes down to is with these, you need to look at the table unless you're using A36, which is uh, is a pretty common, easy one to work with. Right. So, so those are uh, the ASTM numbering systems and ASTM has its own entire set of hundreds of different specifications. Uh, I believe there's also one for ASE or AISI. Yeah. And this is one uh, maybe a little more descriptive of the steel and it's usually a four or sometimes a five digit number. Mm -hmm. And the first two digits 
relate to what alloy metals are included. And if it's a 10, it, it's a carbon steel. Right. But there, there are other, there's stainlesses and, um, tons and tons of different, different alloy metals that get mixed in. And then the second two or three digits, uh, relate to what the actual carbon content is. Um, so like a low carbon steel might be a 1006 or a 1027. Mm-hmm. Uh, a medium carbon would be like a 1030 to 1050. And uh, a high carbon would be a 1060 to 1095. Right. Pretty common one is like 1090, which is, uh, been a lot of people refer to as a spring steel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty easy to come by. Um, the, the, the steels that I normally used were the low carbon steels at 1020, 1030, 1040, somewhere in that, that region. Those were very common steels that I would often use for uh, projects I was working on and, and usually were relatively inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 1090 is kind of an expensive steel, but it's got some pretty cool properties. It's basically a spring. Right. So one would think that, you know, if you, if you have that figured out that the tens, you know, what, what does it mean for the other numbers? You can go and look uh, at the other designations and like the 1100 series is resulfurized, 1200 is resulfurized and rephosphorized, 1500 is plain carbon, but has manganese in it. The 2300 and 2500 series are nickel 31, 32, 33, and 34 series are various combinations of, of nickel chromium. And they, it, the list goes on and on. So the reality is, again, you, you almost have to go and see what other people in your industry are using and uh, take it from there. Yeah. Um, then there's another set of greatest steels, which are usually for tool steels. Um, and so like an O1, which is uh, a pretty common steel in some things like knives mm-hmm. or uh, tools. And uh, A2 is another very common one. Um, and an O is an oil hardened steel and A is an air hardened steel. Right. Um, and I really don't understand where the numbers came from, but you can look them up in a table as to what, that, <laughs> what they mean. Um, right. Right. And I suppose this is like looking for any other component in any other field of engineering. You, you think you have a, a steel for every possible application you want until you suddenly find that you're looking for a steel that works well uh, high strength and a high temperature application that is a, it's going to be sulfuric acid environment with infrequent, but measurable impact on the surface uh, that might cause deformation and therefore uh, create a stress riser that you don't want. You go, Oh my Lord, which steel do I pick out to do this? Is that Haster N? Is that the, the steel you want? What is that? Yeah, so Hastaloy is a is a high performance alloy that is useful in in many uh, many applications. It it does have uh, corrosion resistance, which is something that you often need in a a nasty environment. Yeah, I was thinking about the steels that are used or proposed to use in like uh, you know molten salt reactors. Yeah, but but you even look. I'm looking now at a page with Hastaloy, and there's. It looks like 10 or 11 variations on, you know, the Hastelloy uh, offering, uh, depending on exactly what you're trying to do with it. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, this is one of these cases where you almost, unless you're an expert in this, you almost have to call the manufacturer and say, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. Which one do you suggest? 
Yeah, but then, you know, back to the an electrical analogy, you're more than picking out a resistor then. Then you're picking out some weird fringe case, something or other. It, it's not a jelly bean part. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not a jelly bean part, no. No, if, if, you could, if you're able to get by with just, you know, 1020, 1040, something that's, that's fairly inexpensive and, and stocked rarely at your uh, your metal supplier, then I guess that would be the equivalent of a jelly bean part. <laughs> All right. Well, tell you what, guys, we've wandered on uh, for quite a while now about uh, steel, and uh, I'm not sure how many how many errors we've made or how many uh, wrong paths we've we've headed down. But uh, I, I think we've done as much damage as we could possibly do in one episode. <laughs> I think so, probably. So again, if if any of our listeners have some expertise in this area, uh, please feel free to uh, correct us. We'll uh, we'll do what we can to uh, correct things on future episodes, or even better, come on. Share your stories with us. We always love to hear engineering war stories. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's enough for tonight. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, We'll get together in another couple of weeks and we'll do this again. Yeah. Goodbye. See you next time. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>